Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. It's eight minutes after seven, just gone nine minutes. Uh, and uh, this is a special program. Normally we have burning issue in the slot. But we've decided to shift the focus to Al-Aqsa. And um, on the 21st of August 1969, an extremist Australian Christian, Dennis Michael Rohan, attempted to set fire to Masjid Al-Aqsa Mosque, a significant moment in the history of the sacred mosque. Now the fire destroyed some of Jerusalem's most historic landmarks, including a thousand-year-old pulp. It is believed uh, Dennis Rohan's actions had the blessing of the Israeli occupational forces at the time. Some 51 years later, the noble sanctuary of Al-Aqsa remains under as great a threat as ever. Uh, so welcome to the special program on Masjid Al-Aqsa. And uh, as we remember this event and look at how it relates to the current events at Al-Aqsa and Palestine, uh, we will highlight the fact that this week marks the launch of a global campaign initiated by the Mimba Al-Aqsa Forum, uh, which is scheduled to begin on the 21st of August. Our guests this evening, uh, in the simulcast, there will be Molina Yusuf Patel, Secretary General of United Ulama Council of South Africa, Dr. Anwar Nagya, a member of the Mimba Al-Aqsa Forum, uh, Friends of Palestine founder Ismail Adam Patel, and Hafid Ibrahim Musa from the Palestine Information Network. And we'll also be joined uh, in a moment uh, by uh, Sheikh Ibrahim Gabriels, who is uh, the director of the Al-Quds Foundation, and also uh, our, he is uh, a board member on the Mimba Al-Aqsa Forum as well as we engage with this matter. And I think also it's prudent for us to mention at the offset um, that this becomes even more topical right now because of the political situation happening uh, inside Jerusalem, uh, the relations uh, between uh, the United States and Israel, and most recently UAE stepping out of the shadows and kind of entrenching the relationship uh, with the Zionist State of Israel. And people asking questions what does that mean so I think that this will be a very broad discussion but focused on the theme of uh, yes the uh, burning of the member uh, as a physical but also ideological act um, in a sense and I do believe we have online with us now uh, Sheikh Ibrahim Gabriels uh, director of the Al-Quds Foundation Sheikh Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh and all our dear listeners and Honorable Maulana Yusuf Patel and Honorable Dr. Anwar Nagia, Honorable Radha Ismail Patel and Hafiz Ibrahim Musa. Uh, it, it's a it's a sad a sad moment, or it was a sad moment 51 years, and every year at this time it's a sad moment. And uh, we thank Voice of the Cape and all the other radios and media for allowing us to speak to our community and to the people of the world, not only Muslims. Uh, and, and, you know, when you spoke about this and you mentioned the name Dennis Michael Rohan, um, I couldn't help to think about our honorable former president of the MGC and former director of Al-Quds Foundation, Maulana Ihsan Hendricks, may Allah grant him gender to serve those. Because, uh, I mean, Maulana always spoke about uh, 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 this name. I mean, some people just say Michael Rohan, but Maulana preferred to say Dennis Michael Rohan. And, and uh, yes, on the 21st of August, 1969, just imagine attempting to burn the Masjid Al-Aqsa, La ilaha illallah. So this is a crucial moment for all of us, for the Muslims especially, but for all the people in the world, because yeah. Masjid Al-Aqsa is the, is the first Qibla of the Muslim Ummah. Mm. And, and uh, Sheikh Rai Salah that takes a lead and is called the Shaykh Al-Aqsa of the world. You know, he's been locked up again in, for 17 months. And we saw the video when he went to his mother to greet his mother. And he said, Mother, don't worry. 
It's only going to be a few days. That is the spirit of the people of Palestine and the Sheikh Al-Aqsa. And he always used to tell us in the world, Al-Aqsa fi khatr. Masjid Al-Aqsa is in danger because that was 51 years ago, but it didn't stop. The, the burning continues. So what Sheikh Raid Salah is actually telling the people, the Muslims of the world, is that how can you sit back and people are trying to burn and to destroy Masjid Al-Aqsa? So I, I, I know my time is limited, Brother Sheikh, but on behalf of our Quds Foundation from South Africa and our Quds Foundation International, we give our full support and we ask everybody this week to concentrate and in fact, the request is this Jumu'ah, every Imam should be the focus on Majl Aqsa. Jazakumullah khairan and may Allah grant the, the, the program to be a great success. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. That, of course, being uh, Shaykh Ibrahim Gabriel's. Uh, and uh, we, were, uh, we are engaging on the matter of uh, 51 years later. Uh, and the blaze continues. That's the discussion talking about uh, the burning of the member of Salahuddin Ayyubi uh, in 1969 and how those events uh, fit into uh, an entire narrative that still plays itself out in, uh, in, in the lands of Palestine. And, of course, this program is... Is a simulcast with Voice of the Cape, uh, CII Radio, Salam Media, and Alan Saad, and those audien- the audiences are all tuned into this discussion this evening. I want to welcome uh, my other two guests uh, in studio with me, Dr. Anwar Nagia, a member of Al Aqsa Forum uh, member, and then also online we have Mona Yusuf Patel from United Ulama Council of South Africa. Uh, gentlemen, Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum wa Now, I know that United Ulama Council of South Africa um, uh, has uh, most recently released a, a, a statement uh, uh, we uh, in uh, yourself, uh, Mona Yusuf, had uh, kind of just sketched the significance of this uh, 1960, this incident of 1969. Um, but uh, just you know, pivotal to that, if, I go, if we go back two years, uh, to 1967, uh, where we see the seizure of Al-Aqsa taking place. Um, so, in your mind, if you kind of put the two together, does this seem like a coincidence? Or is, does it seem as if there was some sort of uh, chess move taking place at that time? Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. My pan, uh, colleagues on the panel and to One the listeners down. across uh, South Africa. Yes, I think uh, in your introduction you, you've uh, referred to uh, Dennis Michael Rohan, who attempted to set fire to the Masjid al Aqsa. And uh, as you've correctly uh, pointed out, that 51 years later, the threat against the noble sanctuary of Aqsa continues. Uh, and therefore, uh, you know, whatever happens, uh, I don't think uh, happens coincidentally. Uh, it's part of a bigger and broader agenda. We must uh, understand that uh, the uh, you know the uh, various <coughs> movements within uh, the uh, Zionist Israel occupied Palestine are committed to see the ultimate destruction 
of the Masjid al-Aqsa sanctuary and they they wait in anticipation uh, to build what they regard as the Jewish temple in its place. So in my view, uh, this is all part of a bigger, broader agenda, certainly not coincidental that there have been several attempts uh, over the past years aimed at uh, the destruction of Masjid Al-Aqsa. Now, uh, latched onto that, uh, Mona Yusuf, um, the, it begs the other question, because we're talking about an Australian national, Dennis, uh, uh, Dennis Michael Rohan, who was Christian, and uh, he claims uh, to have been inspired by God to you know, carry out this action in Masjid Al-Aqsa. Um, now, the, the question would be, what is, why, why would a Christian uh, insert himself in, in a sense, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a narrative that uh, has been uh, a conflict between uh, the Jewish and the Islamic world? Why would, why would a Christian insert himself in this narrative? I think uh, his actions uh, were motivated by an ideology that is found within the broader uh, Christian uh, community, uh, and that is aptly called Christian Zionism. And Christian Zionists believe that they have a biblical obligation to support the uh, state of Israel. The belief stems from the idea that God promised the land of Israel to the Jews who will rule it until Jesus returns, may peace be upon him, to Jerusalem. Hence, their support for Israel is equated to support for the return of Prophet Jesus, may peace be upon him. They believe that Israel is outlined in the scripture Uh, belongs exclusively to the Jewish people. Therefore, the land must be, uh, uh, you know, taken away from the Palestinians. Palestinians should be driven away from their homes. And the illegal Jewish settlements uh, should expand and keep growing. So they aver that the founding of the State of Israel in 1948, and the capture of Jerusalem in 1967 was the miraculous fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that he would establish a Jewish nation forever in Palestine. And this belief is so widespread that at least one in four American Christians uh, that were surveyed by Christianity Today Uh, which is a magazine, said they believe that it is the biblical responsibility to support the nation of Israel. So, uh, you know, uh, the, the, uh, they are, or the the Rohan's uh, actions were very much motivated by his belief that supporting Zionism is actually supporting the re- return of 
the Prophet Jesus. So Christian Zionism's fusion of religion with politics works to guarantee Israeli interests. It is a political theology based on the belief that Israel is not like any other country. It is part of God's plan foretold in the scripture. Hence, they would do everything or anything required to ensure that the Temple uh, of Solomon is built on the Aqsa sanctuary, which would then herald the coming of Jesus. Now, um, I just to put into context, because we're speaking about uh, the member of Salahuddin Ayyubi, and a lot of people would ask the question, well, it's just a member. You know, what is the significance of this? Yes, there was damage done to the masjid, but this central piece, what is its meaning? And wh- what is the, 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 the reason that uh, the, there's such great significance placed in this member? Um, so, uh, Dr. Nagia, if we look at, at, at the member and the role that it played and what it represented, can you just maybe expand on that? Uh, you know, and why the destruction of this, of, of this member by uh, this, uh, this, this Australian national, Dennis Michael Rohan, um, in a sense, set the scene both for, uh, physically, but also, uh, in, a, in a sense, from a, a uh, political uh, standpoint, a political narrative for what would follow uh, in the decades thereafter, which continues in 2020. Yeah, shukran. Assalamu alaikum uh, to our brother Yusuf and also to Mulanai, um, to Sheikh Ibrahim Gabriels, to the listeners and to all the panelists this evening. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Yes, thanks for having us. We really appreciate it. I represent as well the Palestine Museum. Your point is well made in the sense that we have to understand the significance of the position of a member. Now, most people understand Muslims, particularly when they go to mosque, when they when they in in in, in prayer in Juma, in great events in, in on the Islamic calendars. Many of the direction of the Muslims comes from the pulpit or from a member, from the sheikhs and and and, and all of the, the the learned scholars. But more particularly, the member of uh, Al Quds. Uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque, Al-Quds is basically the name for Jerusalem, but Al-Aqsa, the member, was an important part after its liberation by Salahuddin Ayyubi. Now, the city of Jerusalem, the city of Al-Quds, many, many centuries ago, more than uh, 4,000 years, uh, 600 years, the Muslims, um, at the time, were not Muslim because Islam is only 1400 years ago but you had the Byzantine Christians and you had the Jews which came literally from a scattered people from Egypt and then during the Canaan period were Canaanites and entered entered Jerusalem not as a big big grouping and entered um, the Quds area or Al-Quds <coughs> Al-Aqsa was built before that in during that period as well and it became the first Qibla for Muslims now naturally the member of of Al-Quds represented the direction not only for Muslims but also the political religious and spiritual ideological position 
and therefore the mimba was an important, uh, significant uh, feature. And Salahuddin Ayubi not only liberated Al Quds but also built and finished that mimba, which was actually built in Syria. Um, and if you understand that particular mimba, that pulpit or that mihrab, it was built by hand, and not a single nail was used to build the many, many thousands of pieces that's puzzled together. You can actually fill two rugby fields of the little joints and disjoints, and people don't know this. It was recently obviously restored uh, back to its rightful place. Almost in the similar vein, it was constructed. Now, Michael Rohan was not placed there just as a tourist, as an Australian uh, Christian Zionist, uh, correctly as Brother Yusuf has said. We can't believe <clears throat> that he had the abilities and capabilities, understanding after the 67 period or the 67 war that took place, the six-day war in 1967, where many of the territories was captured post the Nagba period of 1948 when the Zionist project in fact became a state by the United Nations and we must remember that also in 1948 the apartheid state of South Africa was also given credence by the same United Nations. The same United Nations who, who adopted just later that year the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which in fact goes contrary to the fact that they accepted two illegitimate states that took place both in Israel, which is occupied Palestine, and of course South Africa. And these two states was always in cahoots with the development programs. But coming back to the Mimba, so the importance of the seat of Muslim power, of the seat of Islamic direction, in fact took a particular position when Al-Aqsa was then occupied. It was occupied not only by a Zionist project, but it was always occupied by both the British, which originally was a, a British mandate from 1917 when the Balfour Declaration was there, Palestinian lands, when we, we saw the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, or the demise of the Ottoman Empire, the Al-Aqsa became under threat already from what we call the 1917 Balfour Declaration. And it was important to dislodge the Muslims. And it was important to dislodge probably the best icon of Muslims was the first Qibla, Al-Aqsa. And of course the Mimba, the seat of power, the where sermons are, are given from to destroy that. So Michael Rahan was then declared first an insane person. He was, he was regarded as a person that was, wasn't normal. A normal person could burn almost three quarters of Al-Aqsa, could burn not only the thousand-year uh, mimba, which was constructed by hundreds and hundreds of, of, of artisans in Syria, and also, you know, under no, no protection. The mosque was left on that day. The fire uh, services couldn't come. They all of a sudden came three hours late. There was no assistance to help the destruction of the of the mimba and the mosque. So there was a conspirat what we call a conspiratorial approach to destroying the mimba of Al-Aqsa. And if we look at the evidence presented um, by the Palestinian authorities around this incident, uh, that people are saying, well, you know, uh, this man was a crazy person and uh, he did it. Uh, he, he was released because he was crazy. Uh, the, the reality of the matter is that 
Um, at that time, I mean, uh, just after two years after capturing uh, Al-Aqsa, um, uh, after that, uh, uh, after that, the war that we mentioned, we found a situation where the compound of Al-Aqsa was under uh, was under occupation, and yet a man with uh, carrying his, which he claimed large amounts of flammable material, yes. was able to pass through checkpoints uh, at. There are checkpoints all around the compound. He was able to pass through with this flammable material, and it is said that the fires were 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 were, were lit 200 meters apart. Apart, yes, yeah. If you look at if you look at what both the the they admitted. Obviously, mm. if you if you look at the what they call the fire forensics, uh, that took the forensics about the issues around how the fire the blaze was started. It was exactly as you said. It was at two different points. And with the same intensity with a view to burn it down. But let me just come back to another point, and, and it, it, it has some correlation. I think we'll, we'll, we'll uh, uh, go back to that point in a moment, inshallah. We're just going to take the adhan for the Waqt Arashah. We'll be back immediately thereafter. Uh, Mona uh, Yusuf Patel, please do stay with us uh, uh, as we engage on this matter further. Of course, this is a simplecast. Uh, uh, tonight, uh, we are joined by CII Radio, Salam Media, as well as the audiences of Radio Al-Ansar. And of course, uh, this is uh, live on 91.3 FM, the voice of the Cape. We're talking about uh, 51 years later, the inferno continues to blaze. Uh, the burning of the uh, member of Salahuddin Ayyubi uh, by an ex- extremist Australian Christian, uh, Dennis Michael Rohan. And uh, tonight we're talking about the effects that that had from political uh a viewpoint from a social viewpoint in Palestine and how the dynamics shifted even more to the point where we find ourselves now in 2020. We'll be back after this. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome back. It's 7.37 and uh, yeah, we continue our discussion uh, around the uh, 51 year anniversary of the burning of the member of Salahuddin Ayyubi and uh, we're looking at the broader context and uh, of what Palestine is today uh, what the issue of the uh, the Palestinian liberation uh, movement has been uh, and also we're asking the question uh, in terms of this 51 year period um, how much do we really understand around the importance of the Palestinian issue and the link between the Zionist State of Israel and South Africans uh, and, and, and the history of South Africa and how closely these two are linked. Um, I guess uh, this evening for this part of the show, Mona Yusuf Patel uh, from United Ulema Council of South Africa still in line with us. And then we have Dr. Anwar Nagia, uh, who is uh, on the member Al-Aqsa Forum. And uh, yeah, I just want to go back to Mona Yusuf quickly on the line and uh, ask the question. So if we look at um, kind of the, 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 the inhumanity suffered by Palestinians at checkpoints, etc., uh, it does see, seem to be that they are treated as inferior human beings. Um, now, first of all, the, my, the one part of my question is, is this racism informed by some kind of religious belief? That's the one thing. But the other thing also is, uh, in, in relation to this kind of racism, can we say that, um, you know, we can draw those parallels between racism in, uh, in occupied Palestine and racism in uh, apartheid South Africa on that level? Uh, it is interesting to note that the three major religious communities, that is Judaism, Christianity, 
and Islam all claim to be the children of Nabi Ibrahim alayhi salatu wassalam. But what each of the three faiths derive from the uh, allegiance to Nabi Ibrahim is very, very different. The Jews believe that by virtue of the lineage to Ibrahim alayhi salatu wassalam, they are the chosen people, the children of Ibrahim, and uh, uh, because they were the cho- uh, chosen children of Ibrahim, prophethood was a privilege granted only to them. If you look at uh, the uh, Christianity, Christians, on the other hand, believe that Nabi Isa wasalam, is also or was also a descendant of Nabi Ibrahim who graciously paid for the sins of humanity by giving up his life. So the Jews derived from Ibrahim racial superiority. And the Quran speaks about their sense of racial superiority in the following words, we are the sons of Allah and are his loved ones. The Christians, on the other hand, derive the concept of divine atonement from him. But we as Muslims uh, derive from our link to Nabi Ibrahim wasalam the belief or the notion of unreserved submission. Now, if all three faiths connect to a single prophet, that is Nabi Ibrahim, why then do we have such brutality displayed by uh, cousins, or rather, to be more specific, by the Zionists towards Muslims in Palestine. And to understand this, we need to go back into history. The Jews and the Christians are the children of Nabi Ishaq. So Nabi Ibrahim had two sons, Ishaq and Ismail. And from Ishaq came Yaqub, alayhi salatu wasalam, and from Yaqub came Yusuf, and then the Banu Israel, from uh, Musa, alayhi salam, and then Isa, alayhi salatu wasalam. So that's the lineage coming down from Nabi Ishaq, alayhi salatu wasalam. And the Muslims, however, are connected to Nabi Ismail, whose mother was Hajra, radiallahu anha. The Jews believe that Nabi Ibrahim had an illegitimate relationship with the slave girl of Tara, that is Hadra, and hence Arabs are therefore, uh, you know, the illegitimate tribe uh, that came down from the slave girl Hadra. And as a result, they believe that, uh, you know, the Arabs as such 
are this illegitimate slave, uh, illegitimate children of a slave girl. And based on this, they believe that, uh, you know, they've been exempted from all kind of moral responsibility towards an illegitimate nation. And a, a, a verse in the Quran speaks to this, where Allah says, وَمِنْ أَهْلِ الْكِتَابِ And from among the people or the followers of earlier revelations, uh, are many, if you entrust them, if you entrust them with a treasure, they will faithfully restore it. In other words, there are people from uh, earlier revelations uh, who are <clears throat> absolutely honest, uh, absolutely just, and upright. But then the verse goes on to say, وَمِنْهُمْ And there is among them that من إِنْتَأْمَنْهُ If you entrust them with a single coin, single uh, coin, they will not restore it uh, <coughs> until you keep standing over them. In other words, you have to keep fighting for your right. Which is, and this attitude, the Quran says, is, is an outcome of the assertion that no blame can attach to us for anything that we may do with regards to these unlettered folk. So yes, uh, the treatment and how they view uh, the uh, Palestinians in particular, and Arabs in general, is that these are lesser human beings and uh, children of slaves, illegitimate children of slaves, and hence they are they owe no moral responsibility to such a nation, and that is evident and demonstrated in the way they treat our Palestinian brethren in uh, Masjid al-Aqsa and in Quds. Uh, the voice of uh, Mona Yusuf Patel of United Ulama Council of South, Af- uh, of, uh, South Africa. And uh, we also have in studio with us uh, Dr. Alwa Nagia. Uh, we're engaging on the burning of uh, the member of uh, Sadahuddin Ayyubi 51 years ago. This broadcast uh, is uh, held in partnership with uh, CII, uh, Radio Islam. Uh, so we welcome the audiences as well as Sada Media this evening. And... Uh, as, as, as we continue this discussion, and I think that um, w- we've got to also shift towards contemporary issues because uh, it's important for us to understand the history, but there have been some shifts most recently, some significant shifts. One of those, uh, Dr. Nagia, is, has been the, uh, the determination of the Trump administration to move the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. Um, and uh, we've also seen uh, UAE normalizing relations with uh, Israel. So uh, what does this do? How does this impact the Palestinian narrative? Does it in any way undermine peace in the region as well? Yeah, I think, first of all, um, I want to just step back. Judaism and Zionism 
are diametrically opposed. The connection and the broad-based popular view is that Judaism is synonymous with Zionism. Zionism is a political ideology. Judaism is a religion. It has its own momentum, and exactly as as uh, <coughs> our brother uh, Yusuf, Sheikh Yusuf, and uh, Patel has articulated in terms of lineage and in terms of what are the outcomes and and why, to an extent, the forms of racism as you see them in the in the contemporary discourse has manifested itself. But Zionism literally started, or the Zionist project started in about 1880, of uh, Lord Balfour because Palestine was a British mandate at the time and one must understand the collapse and the demise of the Ottoman period in fact gave Britain lots of rights over that particular territories as it were and that in fact narrative became a kind of religious discourse which Zionism pushed into a way that it manipulated itself as if Zionism is a religion. Zionism is not Judaism. Zionism is not a religion. It's a political and racist political ideology as it manifests itself in today's contemporary terms. So I just want to kind of put that out there and and because that's the position. Lots of Jewish people do not support Zionists. And and the Christian Zionists uh, in America or the Judeo-Christians in America, is a large percentage of people that actually believe in the narrative as if Zionism, the Zionism that you're seeing today, is the Zionist land or the holy land which they aspire to come from and the descendants of Christ. Uh, if I can maybe just uh, insert uh, this, 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 this comment in there, because uh, we're talking about uh, Theodore Herzl and, and, uh, as the, the architect or the father of, Zion, of Zionism, uh, and we're saying that these two concepts are diametrically opposed, Zionism and Judaism. And even if we look in the life of Theodore Herzl, uh, his only son, Hans, was yeah. given a secular upbringing, and Herzl notably refused to allow him to be circumcised, yeah. so which is a tenant in the Jewish faith. Um, so what we're seeing here is it's not it's it's not necessarily uh, this understanding that it is Judaism versus Islam or that the the, the matter is one of being anti-Semitic, but rather the political view around statehood is is the issue, and the fact that the uh, what makes this even more clear is the whole the Zionist movement itself was started by someone who didn't necessarily accord absolutely. To the text. I mean, he was a Practice. journalist. Yes, yeah, he was a journalist. That in fact, uh, saw persecution of Jews. Yes, um, uh, both in the, the 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 rise of 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 nationalism in Europe and the persecution of Jews everywhere in the world, and that's how the Zionist project actually started. It was a political an ideological position and not so informed by religious discourse on on protecting the the, the Jewish people for a homeland. And as I say, Uganda was one. Um, I think it was Brazil or part of Brazil uh, in Latin America. 
And then, of course, the, the fortuitous nature of the British um, and under the Balfour Declaration, in fact, gave the Jewish homeland because many, many of the persecuted Jews, the Ashkenazi Jews, were persecuted in Europe and they found a good home, a very good home, and the Palestinians embraced them and, and took them in as refugees and didn't know that not only were they going to be parasitic, in fact, by 48, they were armed by the British, they were armed by the Americans, and already in 47 and others, the, the blueprints was there. And of course, the Great Nakba and the expelling of over 7 million Palestinians, of which 7 million lives in exile, and another 9 million lives in Palestine, in probably occupying only 15% of the land. So <clears throat> this has been the kind of contradiction in terms of the two um, kind of contestations. You know, this is not, the Palestinians are not in contestations with Jewish people. The Palestinians are in contestation with, with a Zionist occupier, with a occupying colonial force, aided and abetted by the U.S. Now, since the Tel Aviv move of the embassy to Jerusalem and then Trump declaring that Jerusalem is the capital of the Jewish people, not saying it's the capital of, 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 of Israel, but it's the capital of the Jewish people, confused as he might be, it was part informing his power base and keeping himself more in power to make a kind of statement that would appease the Judeo-Christian Zionists in America. And very similar mistakes was made, by, our, unfortunately, by our Chief Justice, which made the same connection which referred to the, the, the state of Israel or the Israelites as if they're the contemporary Israelites. The Bible or the Torah can't be speaking of the same murders, the same occupation, the same land uh, uh, seizures, the different roads that's being built, one for settlers and the others for Palestinians, the 500 checkpoints just in Jerusalem itself. You know, the new annexation of another 55,000 hectares of land in Area C, which has been taken over by force, even though the UAE perceives that they've stopped annexation in return for normalizations of the Arab states uh, against <coughs> the kind of legitimacy of the state of Israel. It's not going to happen. It hasn't happened. In fact, it's caused a much bigger divide in the contemporary issues. Just yesterday, uh, many, many Palestinians were injured, like they are injured and murdered and maimed every single day in, in the whole of occupied Palestine. Uh, the blockage of Gaza that just took place uh, since 2014 and also recently bombing the last few days, uh, holding and capturing and enslaving two million people, water, schools, sanitations, electricity, every aspect of people's lives, terrorizing young children, arresting kids that are under age, on the age of eight, six, seven. This takes place daily. Their schools, their parents being traumatized, 
Their mothers give birth at checkpoints. Their mothers die at checkpoints. COVID hospitals have been destroyed. Is this the same kind of Israel the Torah or the Bible speaks of? Is this the same kind of society which our chief justice would want to pray for? And anybody who do not support the state of Israel will be cursed and he'll be cursed as a Christian? I don't believe that many Christians endorse that same viewpoint. And this is the narrative which Trump is using. Trump's I couldn't care who's president of America. Their foreign policy towards occupied Palestine is exactly the same. Whether it is Biden and whether it's this right-wing, um, uh, what's it, Karima, Kalama, whatever her name is. Um, Kamala Harris. Yeah, Harris. I mean, she, she's, she's obviously told APAC exactly her allegiance towards the illegitimate state of, 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 of Israel and how the American government should support it. Now, we can't fall for the strap. We can't fall for the strap that, that the Zionist movement is actually a religious movement. They come in peace. They come with the word of God, the word of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They come with the word of, of the blessings of peace. It's not informed by that. It's informed by a different kind of narrative. And so we must not confuse people all the time where they want to use Zionism as a form of a religious discourse. It's not at all. And then also the debate about, you know, if you anti-Zionism, you anti-Jew, which is basically Semitic or anti-Semitic. Anti-Semitism has got nothing to do with your hatred for Jewish people. It's your hatred for Arabs, for all people that come from the Semite region, the old the old region, the old, you know, and this nonsense that the word anti-Semitism is the prerogative of being anti-Jewish community. It's just not so. So, so we're saying that uh, when we talk about Semites, we're not talking about an uh, ethnic group in a sense, but we're talking about a geographical. Geographic, yes, particularly that entire region. Okay. Um, so so um, if we look at this, and I just want to uh, kind of uh, look at some of the incidences uh, that have occurred. We, we've spoken about the 1969 uh, burning of the Mimbar by Daniel Michael Rohan, but also notably in 1990, the first Aqsa massacre, which took place, uh, claiming the lives of 21 Trump worshippers yes. and 150 wounded after a group of settlers attempted to lay the foundation stone to build the, the, uh, the temple. Uh, then uh, in 1990, uh, also in 1990, on the 23rd of September, the second Al-Aqsa massacre, uh, known as the uh, Tunnel Intifada, where 51 uh, Palestinians were killed and 300 injured after the occupation forces opened fire on worshippers in Al-Aqsa following the announcement of the opening of a tunnel adjacent to the Barak wall of the mosque. Then in September of 2000, uh, soon-to-be-elected Israeli uh, Prime Minister Edel Sharon stormed Masjid Al-Aqsa under the guard of hundreds of uh, occupation soldiers, uh, sparking the Al-Aqsa Intifada. And then, of course, also numerous plots have been reported to burn or blow up Masjid Al-Aqsa, 
over the decades, uh, employing military might to shoot and injure worshippers and seeking to install metal detectors at the entrances of Masjid al-Aqsa in 2017, uh, which led to the closure of Masjid al-Aqsa in that period of time. Um, and uh, eventually the metal detectors were, uh, were removed. removed. But um, uh, what was, uh, what would you say, uh, Mona uh, Yusuf, was the, bro- uh, particularly with this last incident in 2017, was the broader uh, agenda uh, around uh, installing metal detectors because someone could so easily say well you know metal detectors keeps everyone safe so what was the reason behind this and uh, setting up cameras and uh, you know uh, monitoring worshippers going to mosque uh, Mona Yusuf I don't know if we yeah I think Mona Yusuf is back with us uh, Mona are you able to hear me? Sorry yes uh, unfortunately I have to take the leave I did indicate that I'll be with you for an hour, mm. uh, so uh, I beg your indulgence. Uh, I, I didn't quite get your last comments, but before I leave, mm. maybe I could take the opportunity of just expressing a view on the UAE and Israeli relations. Mm-hmm. I think the so-called Abraham Accord is in fact a betrayal not only of the Palestinian cause but a blow to the global Muslim Ummah and is tantamount to the abandonment of the defense of Masjid al-Aqsa. So in the final analysis, no supporter of Palestine can truly justify maintaining normalized relations with the Zionist entity given their uh, state-sponsored terrorist activities, given the illegal occupation, and given the further annexation plan. Uh, we pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Amen. turns the table in favor of the Muslim Ummah. Uh, and jazakallah and salamu alaykum to you, to, to our esteemed panelists, and to the listeners. Mona Yusuf, thank so much for joining us this evening. That, of course, being Mona Yusuf Patel from United Ulama Council of South Africa. Um, yeah, just uh, uh, weighing in on uh, the uh, 51 year commemoration of the burning of uh, the uh, member of Salahuddin Ayyubi. Mona, um, all the best, inshallah, shikan so much. And we'll chat soon, perhaps, again, inshallah. Amin. Well, of course, uh, while we are uh, discussing that, uh, perhaps, Dr. Nagy, you would maybe like to take a crack at, at, at that particular uh, you know, question. I think the, 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 the fact that we find ourselves, if I can frame it in uh, uh, my question in this way, we find ourselves in a, in a situation right now where... Uh, I mean, uh, this 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 issue of Palestine uh, is portrayed one way in, uh, in in mainstream media, and we hear another narrative coming through from other sources, from Palestinians themselves, social media. Um, there's definitely a, a a split in how things are being reported, and one of those ways would be, uh, and, and one of the things that might be ambiguous is when we hear Palestinians are being opposed to metal detectors and and cameras being installed on Masjid al-Aqsa, uh, when people say, "Well, these things we trust them because they keep us safe." Um, what, what is your view around, uh, you know, the intention behind installing these 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 security devices, quote unquote, and um, uh, you know how how we should be looking at at at, at the intention uh, for uh, uh, you know this kind of monitoring of of the compound of Laksa. Uh, 
Yeah, so the decision of the Mufti of Al-Aqsa at the time uh, in 2017 when the installation of almost every aspect of every road leading up um, to Al-Aqsa Mosque, the compound uh, Dome of the Rock from north, south, east and west and also aerial photographs. It was all in preparation for the annexation. All of this was done as a precursor to the annexation, full knowing that they already have partial control of the West Bank and they were going to complete it by now saying that Muslims can worship firstly on their terms, already it's very difficult for any person under 55 on certain days to actually perform um, their, their, <coughs> their religious obligations there and more so uh, during the Juma prayer and you find many of the youth having to salah outside of the walls of, of Al-Aqsa. So that was a precursor but Remember, it's also a, a sanctuary, a holy sanctuary, and also part of UNESCO's position with regard to the international protection of places of worship and heritage that has a, <clears throat> that has a, a, a symbolism for all of humanity. It's not only for Muslims, it's important for Muslims, but not only for Muslims, many places of sanctuary in terms of UNESCO. And even UNESCO was condemning the putting up of security apparatus, profiling, high-tech cameras to look at the movements of Palestinians, not to damage, because no Palestinian, not even his right or left mind or right or left, left brain, will go there to damage other than to protect Al-Aqsa. So it was, it was a fallacy to believe that. It was preparing Al-Aqsa for the annexation. It was preparing Al-Aqsa for this complete takeover of Judaizing the whole of the discourse in, in Jerusalem, the Al-Quds. And that was the reason. And of course, many of the Muslims, in fact all of them, listened to the Mufti uh, of Al-Quds saying that we will not make Salah there then. We will make Salah outside of the precincts of the Holy, of the holy, uh, of the holy City. And day after day after day, you know, that strategy worked and they then eventually removed all of the cameras, all of the high tech and of course the what they call the scanners as, as you go through these gates. Particularly, as you say, it's a precursor. And now we know what it was for. It was for the annexation plans which has taken place. And of course, I agree with, with, with uh, <coughs> our brother Yusuf um, in terms of the UAE that have abandoned, that have horse-traded with, uh, with the rights of Muslims to something which is theirs inherently for centuries and to in fact trade that off for normalization of a illegitimate state, a rogue state, a state-sponsored killings, uh, Mossad agents killing people even in, in the UAE not too long ago under the guise of Australian passports on territories within hotels in the UAE. Now we know that it's pressure for the Trump campaign and for the Netanyahu campaign. Both these individuals are not only fighting for their lives but both these individuals are being charged criminally for a number of other events. Besides Trump's impeachment case, there's dozens of other cases 
that's lodged against Trump. And we know now for the first time Netanyahu was brought before a, a, a court in, uh, in occupied territory in uh, Israel. Um, and that, that case is probably going to run for a, for a few years. They have a split government, so Gantz will be head of the military and Netanyahu would be prime minister or president and they will switch roles. You know, in the interim, it is to appease the elections staring down Trump's face, which is a few months away, two or three months away. And they needed something very big. So Kushner, um, <laughs> Jared Kushner, just went on, on the news the other day to say, do you know what normalization means now that the Muslims can come from all over the world uh, to actually ziarat, to come and pray at, uh, their holy, at their holy site and at their holy place? Making a Freudian slip in his statement, you know. He didn't say at the Jewish Temple Mount, but at the Muslims' <laughs> holy site. If you listen to his words, and he's obviously uh, not going to be forgiven by Zionist lobby for his choice of words. Um, just on that, because obviously with the annexation taking place, uh, it brings about the whole question that uh, has been floated uh, in discussions, I mean, going back as far as uh, Bill Clinton and Yasser Arafat, uh, the question of the one or two state solution and which one do you uh, support? Um, in, in, in the context or the grander scheme of things, uh, in getting to a point of, uh, I, I would say, uh, normalization within Palestine uh, and, 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 and dev- building a, a, a relationship between Palestinians and, and, uh, and uh, Jews, what would you say, uh, Israelis, what would you say uh, out of those two options that you know, have been floated as, 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 as solutions to a political and social problem, um, what would you say was, would be the most effective? Ironically, the, uh, the Zionist occupiers of occupied Palestine never, ever believed in a two-state solution. Ever, ever. Kapish. That's the, that's the simple answer. The long answer is that since the Oslo Accord signed by Yasser Arafat, not a single millimeter of land since the 67 borders was ever going to be given to Palestinians. Even in, in, even in the two-state solutions. The reality on the day now that there can never ever be a two-state solution because there's nothing left of occupied Palestine. The settler community has been building, particularly in Jerusalem, over 700,000 new settlements, taken away all of the land which was agreed to in the 67-day period. The Palestinians themselves do not believe in a two-state solutions. Nor did South Africa believe in a nine-state solutions because we had nine homelands. So we incorporated in one unitary state all of the nine homelands into one unitary state. Nobody yearned for a litigious state to be cut or carved out. And secondly, the deal of the, what they call the century, and we call it the deal of the cemetery, in fact gives no legitimacy to Palestinians. They've been given on a drip feed basis 50 billion US dollars, of which only 20 billion dollars or 27 billion dollars they might or might not get. The other balance of the money 
they might get if they behave. So there can be no military, there can be no airport, there can be no single port, there can be nothing in a so-called free Palestinian state. And secondly, there should be no argument made that the Palestinians must fight for determination. The Palestinians existed there. It was, it was Zionist occupiers who came there as guests to their state. A people without the land came to take away a people with the land. And this, ironically, is the conundrum which people can't understand. There is no such thing as a two-state solution. And, and ironically, if we look at that, um, within Congress, uh, and this has been the mantra of most, uh, should I say, uh, uh, political figures who've come to prominence in the United States, particularly in Congress, uh, fl- saying that Israel deserves to exist, uh, and no one denies that. But it almost it almost seems to have been that while these, the statement is being made, uh, the right of the Palestinian to exist has diminished tremendously to the point now where they they are people without a land from a, from from a, from a legal from a legal point of view uh, globally uh, they are people without uh, uh, with with a shrinking heritage in a sense and and an identity that's becoming obscured i mean uh, one of the most recent things in actual fact this is not really recent but palestine has been wiped off google maps yes since. that's right so i mean for the new generation who uses google maps and you know might just somehow end up on on that part of the world they won't see palestine you won't. The U.S. State Department already, as way back in uh, 2018, removed off the topography and typography all the issues around naming of Palestinian cities and remnants of the Palestinian uh, territories as they existed. That instructions was given already, and so did Google and, and, and different uh, cartographies and typographers, in fact, just removed the, the Palestinian history. So we as human beings have to understand that the largest places where people uh, are facing uh, what they call complete expulsion um, is Palestine. That's why that narrative is the biggest one amongst all progressive and free-loving human beings. That we don't say that, the, that Israel has a, has, has a place there should be no place for Israel. There should just be one state, a Palestinian state, which can assimilate everybody that stays in Palestine. Whether you're a Jew, whether you're a believer, non-believer, whatever, all of those persons can stay in Palestine, in one free Palestine, like in South Africa. It doesn't matter what persuasion you had, whether you were Kosa, Sutu, Zulu, um, you know, black, white, Indian, whatever you called yourself. You, you're in one South African single unitary state and not in a, a, a secular or a, sorry, in a divided state which is, is given the expression to now with regard to forming uh, a two-state solutions. That doesn't exist and it cannot exist and that narrative is pushed all the time by trying to find research that will give <coughs> the Zionist occupiers a legitimacy, A, for the land and B, that people actually wanted. They don't want it. Both Jewish communities, Christian communities, and Muslim communities want a single unitary Palestinian state. They do want it. They don't want a Zionist occupier to do it. I can tell you 
I can name, we can name rabbis that uh, are in support of a unitary state. Uh, and uh, we do. Uh, we are now joined online by a founder of Friends of Palestine, uh, Ismail Patel, who joins us. Uh, and uh, I will say, uh, welcome into the discussion. Assalamu alaikum, sir. Alaikum salam and assalamu alaikum to all your listeners as well. It's a pleasure having you with us this evening, sir. And uh, yes, uh, speaking about uh, Al Aqsa, 51 years after the burning of the um, uh, mimbar of Salahuddin Ayyubi, and um, it, it seems to have uh, this. This seems to have signified. Obviously, uh, let's not forget about the Nakba of 1948. But this uh, t- touching at the heart of the uh, Palestinian, uh, should I say, uh, cause the preservation of Al Aqsa and the significance that it plays um, in uh, in the life in the roles of Palestinian Muslims, Muslims globally. Uh, what, what would you say from your perspective um, has this done for not, not necessarily the morale of the Palestinians, but in, in, terms, of the, the, uh, uh, in, in terms of how it, 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 in a sense, alludes to the, 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 the greater issue of not only the annexation that we've been speaking about, but a sense of Palestine slipping through our fingers. Uh, we've heard Sheikh Raid Salah uh, saying on numerous occasions that Al-Aqsa is in danger. So how does that speak into the narrative uh, 51 years on? Sure. I mean, the member is obviously a great symbolic image for Muslims, and it's a metaphor for the Palestinian occupation as well. I mean, being in the front of the masjid, uh, the person who ascends the member has great uh, reverence within the community. And the member itself is a symbolic of, of Muslims and everything we believe in. So the idea of, of the member of Salahuddin, of course, has a great resonance. And as I mentioned, it has also got the impact of what happened in 1969 as a metaphor for the whole Palestinian tragedy. Here was an Australian individual uh, who is pro-Zionist but not Jewish himself. Uh, brought to Israel to be uh, studying in the kibbutz through Jewish agencies, and then he's given access to Masjid al-Aqsa, uh, and burnt, uh, who then burns the masjid and the member itself. While the Palestinians who are trying to put the fire out, they're not able to do that. First, they're obstructed by the guards, Israeli guards outside the masjid. Once they managed to break that through, they found that they couldn't get the water and then when they tried to get the fire engines from the West Bank, the Israeli authorities wouldn't allow Palestinian fire engines into the masjid itself. So the fire took a whole 24 hours, in which time the member and the whole southern wing of the masjid was burnt down. So that's the metaphor we have here, that while Israel sometimes takes it backstage, it allows others to re- wreak havoc upon the Palestinians and, and then says, you know, it's not our fault. Uh, and we have seen this repeated over and over again. But the idea of the member itself brings life and resonance to the Palestinian struggle and an understanding that this issue uh, brings about the whole global Muslim community, that brings about the human rights violations against the Palestinians, and the tragedy that has been facing them since the Nakba, as you mentioned earlier. So it is very, very significant. The idea of the member is very important for us. Uh, and it's very important for our community and the listeners to understand why the Palestinians want us to revive and understand uh, the significance of the member and the burning of the member itself. Now, um, if we look at the current context uh, and uh, we see that uh, Palestine uh, has become, in a sense, a, uh, a 
a, a metaphor to a large degree for the uh, dissent, uh, I think, within Muslim communities. One of those being the fact that we have UAE as an uh, 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 as a Arab uh, political force or player in the Arab world, uh, coming along and saying, let's normalize relations with Israel. Um, how, how, how does that, in your opinion, uh, change the, the uh, change the perspectives in the Arab world, or in, in a sense, how, how how does that affect uh, the Palestinian cause uh, as a whole when we see uh, UAE coming to, coming to the discussion with an idea to normalise the relations uh, with a uh, with 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 Israel at a time where Palestinians don't have the right to self determination. So let's put it in the perspective and in the context we're having this discussion today uh, regarding the member itself. Now let's remind ourselves that the member was commissioned by Nuruddin Zingi uh, in 1167. At that time in 1167, Jerusalem was occupied by the Crusaders. And the reason the Crusaders were successful in 1167 to have Muslim Laksa in their possession was because of pliant leaders or Arabs around the region who were supporting the Crusaders. And here was one leader who stood out against the mood of the people. So we have a very similar parallel. I'm not saying it's the same, but we have to think it of in that context, that it only takes one individual's vision and his commitment, and then bringing the forces together for the liberation and justice of other people in the hands of Nuruddin. So what UAE is doing is nothing new for us. Unfortunately, the success of the Crusaders was based on the fact that the Arabs, uh, leaders of the time, supported the Crusaders to, to take over Jerusalem. Otherwise, you know, a few hundred Crusaders from Europe wouldn't have been successful to overcome millions of indigenous Palestinians and Muslim and Christian population of the region. It was only possible because of the traitors of the time. We have a very similar situation now, wherein we have UAE complying with Israel uh, and trying to undermine uh, the human rights, uh, international law, uh, and the legitimacy of the Palestinian people. Uh, that obviously is extremely painful. Uh, it changes the dynamics temporarily. But that doesn't mean that simply because UAE has decided, which it was doing privately anyway, to go public uh, with Israel, with its relationship, doesn't mean that the situation we should put up our hands and say that the Palestinian cause has now been defeated. I think it's far from it. I think UAE itself has shown that it depends on the greater civil society to rise up and change the dynamics of the region and of the world order itself regarding the Palestinian issue in which justice should be brought and international law should be respected. Now, talking about international law and uh, the, 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 the fact that uh, we find a situation where uh, more and more countries uh, are recognizing the, 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 the injustices, I would say, at least, but uh, the, 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 the global, econo- global, should I say, uh, uh, I would say global uh, superpowers in the sense, the United sure. States and uh, uh, all, all the others, um, have, had the, have had a stranglehold on, 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 on the global agenda, in a sense, and as far as Israel and Palestine is concerned. Um, so when we look at that, uh, and I want to again revisit the UAE issue, because UAE is a very powerful player within the Arab world. Um, you know, how, how does that affect the, the discussion on a global level 
in terms of uh, in terms of of, of the Palestine, uh, not only the Palestinian issue, but going forward, the 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 the, the future of uh, you know relations uh, between uh, Arabs and Jews in Palestine, uh, when we see that there's a shift from uh, a, a, a from from Muslim countries in a sense. Well, I think, you know, uh, let's, let's a lot of things to unpack then. The first thing I, is I would say that I don't believe the UAE is a very powerful player in the region. It is what I would say, and, and I think what you're trying to maybe say is that they have been given a leverage by the superpowers to appear powerful. But UAE's position uh, internally in its presence, leadership's hold to power is not dependent on the legitimacy of the people on the ground in UAE. It's dependent on the fact that America and Europe is allowing to have that authoritarian regime. Once they turn around, UAE would collapse within weeks. So, you know, they're very, very weak. And in one way, the reason UAE had to accept uh, uh, and come publicly of its relationship with Israel is because it's a proxy power of America. It has to do what America superpower tells us to do. And at the, mo- at the moment, American uh, regi- uh, administration is very pro-Israeli, uh, extremist uh, Zionist, I would say. And therefore, the, the re- a lot of client states within the Middle East are feeling the heat to accept Israel as a normal state. Uh, and, and that is a problem. So I, I, I would shift that. The other, the other fact is, I, I wouldn't understand. I would try to understand that what UAE is doing is not for a point of strength, but weakness. Because if they were strong, then hope we would understand that they would be able to stand up for justice, while America would be able to condemn it. But they cannot do that. They can't afford to do that. And that's why it has to do what it has done. And therefore, I think there is a polarization within the. Not only the political, the mainstream sort of leadership in the region, but between the population and its leadership. And I think that will come to haunt many of the states uh, within the Middle East who think it is acceptable and normal to accept a racist state uh, and, and its legitimacy while it's oppressing another people, whether they're, they're Muslims or non-Muslims. The other factor you mentioned about Jewish-Muslim uh, factor, I think it's very important to point out that the Jewish people have lived happily amongst Muslim population for hundreds of years, if not thousands. When the Jews were being persecuted throughout Europe, they found refuge in the Muslim world. So Muslims do not have any problems with the Jewish population at all. What they have a problem with is a Zionist political ideology that considers itself superior and wants to undermine and expel the indigenous people. That's where the problem emerges. And I think we have to be very clear about that point. Uh, the voice of, uh, uh, is, uh, of Ismail Patel, founder of Friends of Palestine. And Ismail, I just want to then get into one of the other issues here. And I think this one is particularly uh, important for us to, 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 to address because um, it speaks to the global movement. Um, now, BDS uh, and the various BDS movements have been very effective in uh, at least affecting some kind of economic shift in the thinking around Palestine. Um, but if we, look at, if we look at how the BDS v- uh, movement is viewed um, in the United States, for instance, there seems to be, uh, at least at a political level, a lot of resistance to BDS movements. I, I, I believe at one point uh, certain universities were actually, um, in a sense, prejudicing students 
who formed parts of VD's movements, and uh, if there was any kind of activity on campus rega- uh, related to this, uh, I believe they were penalized. So um, if, if you look at this, first of all, has the VD's movement, in your opinion, been effective as a tool? And um, do you feel it, in some ways it is under threat as a result of uh, the threat that it poses uh, f- from an economic point of view? Well, I think it definitely is under threat. There's no doubt about it. But it's under threat because Israel itself is being threatened by the nonviolent movement and the civil rights of individuals throughout the globe. The fact of BDS as being nonviolent passive movement to bring about justice for the Palestinians, I think the Israelis are running out of excuses now. and They've had all the excuses to undermine the Palestinian cause. And this is the last straw for them. And therefore, they're putting out all their ammunitions in the social media, financial, political, and diplomatic to undermine the BDS movement. Despite that, you look what's happening in America itself uh, and in Europe. Let's take America where you started off. Despite what the administration is trying to do, many universities are still boycotting Israel. The Black Lives Movement now is now hand in glove with the Palestinian movement and calling for boycotting of the Palestinian, or excuse me, of the Israeli goods in the mainstream arena. That is a big shift change, irrespective of what the administration is doing. Similarly, think of Germany. In Germany, last year, I think it was a year before, they banned, uh, nobody was allowed to do BDS. This year, they took the um, pro-Palestinian activists took the case to court, and the, the court in, Israel, in Germany have now said, it's illegal to stop anybody boycotting Israel. Yeah, so we have a success. In Britain, uh, the British government announced that no city councils in Britain could boycott Israeli goods. Leicester City Council took the British government to court and succeeded that, no, you can boycott goods coming out from West occupied territories. So you have a battle going on. Before Israel had an open arena, do what it likes, uh, that is no longer possible. Yes, the BDS movement is in danger, therefore we have to be very vigilant and we have to carry on not only exercising our right to boycott goods emerging from the occupied territories, but we have to fight for our civil liberties and our rights to boycott any nation we feel is transgressing human rights. Uh, And therefore, I think it's a very, very important tool, and I think it's very effective, and that is the reason Israel is so scared about BDS. Now, uh, besides looking at the significance of the burning of the Mimbar, we also unpack the normalization deal. Uh, we have been unpacking the normalization deal between Israel and the United Arab Emirates, uh, which many pa- Palestinian commentators and political voices have slammed. Uh, and now, Hafid Ibrahim Musa from the Palestine uh, Information Network has written about this in his latest opinion piece, and we would like to unpack this with him a little bit more. He joins us online. Hafid Ibrahim Musa, assalamu alaikum and welcome to the discussion. Alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, Muhammad the fellow panelists, as well as uh, those joining us on this discussion all over the world. Jazakallah khair, shukran so much. And uh, yes, indeed, I think that, um, first of all, we're speaking about 51 years later, uh, um, the burning of the member um, as a... Uh, a watershed moment um, and, and, and a key point in uh, a downward trend uh, as far as the the, 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 the quality of life of Palestinians, um, you know, from annexation of land, from, uh, you know, uh, being, 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 being persecuted, uh, leaders being locked up, and so many, uh, and so many different shifts. And I think, uh, hopefully, uh, yeah, Ibrahim, we still there? 
uh, we just quickly address that. But in the meantime, basically, what I was trying to say is, um, if we if if we look at if we look at that downward trend in a sense, and we look at where we are now as 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 a community. We do have Ibrahim uh, Musa still in line with us. Uh, so viewing that through through the lens of an ordinary uh, ordinary you know citizen, but let's say for instance South African, um, we see now in social media um, this this idea uh, or this concept that the broader discussion around uh, Palestine is a Jewish versus um, a Muslim issue. That is the, the issue being touted. Uh, and peace in the Middle East is seen as let's get these two religious groups together and let's find some common ground. Um, and so when we see, uh, you know, uh, Countries like UAE, Muslim-dominated countries, um, come into the discussion uh, extending a hand to uh, Israel. It's seen as if that there is this support from uh, from from a Muslim, uh, you know, uh, dominated country in this discussion. Um, and 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 so, uh, would you? What would you say? You know. The, the the mainstream media view of of of, of this uh, is uh, in terms of its impact on the broader discussion, and what would you say uh, the danger of misrepresenting this conflict as a Muslim and Jew, uh, should I say, uh, a, a d- a difference has on the the issue of main, continuing to persecute uh, Palestinians as as we've seen uh, over the number of years. We have to discuss here, what we have to point out here is that Israel has been living um, under, uh, in in a sense, uh, borrowed time uh, in its uh, dealings with the world, in its uh, not facing up to accountability for the occupation um, through the years, particularly from you know, the early 90s when this peace process started, you had the Madrid Peace Conference and, you, you know, you had the secret negotiations that culminated on the White, White House lawn uh, with the signing of the Oslo Accords. And that was a, a game changer that really uh, set back the Palestinians many, many years in their struggle for justice and equality. And, uh, you know, Israel was able to persist under the, uh, this idea or, or the, the veneer that it, it is seeking peace with the Palestinians. And, uh, you know, that, that had continued through numerous peace conferences along the way, you know, in Taba and in Indianapolis and, and many other places. Uh, but that, that obviously reached its logical end. It reached a stalemate. Um, and, you know, even those who were previously partners with, uh, with Israel in that peace process, uh, although there's still security coordination, uh, largely they've also given up on that particular process and recognized it to be a failure. Now, uh, by, by at this particular time, for politically expedient reasons, with the figure of Donald Trump, um, you know, being a mobilizing figure for Mohammed bin Zayed on the one hand, uh, other Arab dictatorships, and uh, Netanyahu on the other hand, um, you know, they've used this to show up their political careers, but they've also used this to, you know, 
create this uh, cloud again as if, uh, you know, there's still a peace process going on. So Oslo reached its end, and when people started talking about annexation, uh, Israel faced a firestorm across the world uh, with with people, you know, uh, even within uh, former Zionist uh, switching sides and saying that, uh, you know, more and more people talking about the uh, one-state solution. So Israel was uh, facing a kind of PR nightmare there, and uh, therefore they've, uh, having lost on Oslo, they've come forward now with uh, an alternative peace plan. Um, you know, ignoring the Palestinians completely, but saying you know we're making peace with with the uh, wider world. And we need to call this out, uh, saying that this conflict or this uh, usurpation of land occurred on Palestinian land. It dispossessed Palestinians of of their land. And therefore, you know, speaking to any other Arab country, the experience of the peace treaty with Egypt, the Camp David Accords, supposedly said... Uh, that it's going to have an impact on, on the fates of Palestinians. It didn't. And, uh, you know, you, for anybody actually to use the words, for the media to use the words, this is a peace deal, um, it, it, it itself is, is very problematic. You only make peace with a country that you are uh, at war at. And as many people have pointed out, your previous guests as well, um, these two countries um, have uh, not been in a state of war. And more so since the early 90s, the UAE has been made, making overtures uh, to to the state of Israel. So that, that in itself uh, is, is problematic. Uh, so, uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, this is more a security relationship between the United Arab Emirates and, and the state of Israel. And Israel itself has called bluff on this if one has to see ours. After uh, these accords were released, uh, you know, uh, Netanyahu said annexation is still on the table. And, uh, you know, more recent reports saying that uh, we just said we wanted to suspend. The key word is suspend, you know, whether it's suspend for a few days or a few weeks. But uh, annexation was, was, on, was always on the table, and uh, this does nothing to do that. So, you know, just improving bilateral relations between the UAE and, and Israel uh, in no way has any bearing uh, on uh, the, the material of what goes on the, on the ground in the occupied territories. Now, following on from Donald Trump's most recent mo- uh, comments um, and uh, uh, the article that you had subsequently written uh, around, you know, the relationship with uh, uh, between UAE and uh, the and Israel and normalizing of relations. One of the things that you mentioned was the weaponization of prayer. Uh, could, could you maybe just expound on 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 on, on that choice of words? Yes, Jazakallah And what, what uh, the, this is all about, and it uh, goes back to those comments that uh, Dr. Anwar Nagia. Um, a reference of it earlier, and this came from Donald Trump itself. It's in the text of the uh, of, of the deal, and uh, it was emphasised after that by Jared Kushner as well. And this says that the, uh, the the agreement will allow for Muslims around the world to come and visit Masjid al-Aqsa in peace and 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 pray at the, at the Masjid. This is something that they haven't been able to do before. And the sentiments of Kushner were uh, he went into it in more detail than any, than anybody else uh, that extremists in his uh, language around the world have used Masjid al-Aqsa as a mobilizing force uh, 
saying that Muslims are not allowed to come to Masjid al-Aqsa and uh, you know the, the masjid is out of bounds for Muslims and therefore this will take the wind uh, I'm paraphrasing here but this is the crux of his argument uh, that this will take the wind out of the sails of these extremists they won't be able to claim that Masjid al-Aqsa is under occupation anymore um, because you know people would be able to fly directly to Tel Aviv uh, Arabs that, uh, who um, obviously um, haven't been able to do this largely will be able to do uh, to do, do that in droves and uh, pray in peace in Masjid al-Aqsa now uh, I think there's still big question marks over whether that will actually occur yes uh, we've seen uh, you know progress towards establishment of embassies telecommunication links business links many things have moved quite fast Netanyahu also spoke on Al Arabiya television in an interview or Sky News Arabia rather uh, so speaking directly to the Arab world so there, there is progress for this normalization deal but there's a big question mark about this because the custodians of Masjid al-Aqsa firstly are uh, in, on official level, the Jordanians. Um, and more than uh, the Jordanians, the bigger custodians are the people of Jerusalem. And we have a fatwa yesterday from uh, Mufti Muhammad Hussein, the uh, Mufti of Palestine, saying that anybody who visits Masjid al-Aqsa through the UAE-Israel deal is, uh, is, is to be shunned, and this is a haram in his fatwa, a haram act. So whether they'll actually allow this to happen, uh, whether there'll be uh, you know some uh, resistance against this, uh, remains to be seen. But the question you ask about uh, weaponization of prayer is that even if this goes ahead, um, you know prayer at the holiest, third holiest site for Muslims should not be dependent. It's a universal right to play at your, your holy sites, uh, you know, sites of universal heritage, UNESCO sites, etc. And one does not need this to be tied in towards a deal of capitulation for one to be able to pray. One should be able to pray in dignity. And just as those worshippers refuse to enter Masjid al-Aqsa because it would impinge their dignity going through the uh, metal detectors of the oppressor, likewise, uh, you know, having to uh, enter into Masjid al-Aqsa purely on, uh, on the basis of recognizing Israel as uh, the sovereign over Jerusalem um, and negating the Palestinians' rights is, is an absolute sellout. And I quoted in the piece uh, a relevant quotation from Molana Ehsan Hendricks, uh, who spoke in 2014 um, about this and probably on other occasions as well, where he referenced a certain person who came back, a Muslim from South Africa, who visited Al-Aqsa and said, you know, I, w I went there, I prayed, I enjoyed myself. Uh, you know, to me, everything seemed uh, above board. The Palestinians are not suffering because, you know, he had the sheltered view of a tourist. And Mona Ixan Hendricks, you know, forcefully interjected against that, saying, uh, you know, just because you, are, uh, as a foreign passport holder, have a great time in Palestine, and uh, that because, you know, you, you follow a, a certain uh, tourist itinerary, does not mean that uh, Masjid al-Aqsa is not under occupation and, not, and it doesn't face dire threats, etc. And, and, and therefore, uh, you know, the similar sentiment fits into to this, that if people visit under the steel and see an embellished picture, just like people
people who go on these pro, these fully paid uh, junket visits from South Africa and elsewhere um, under Israeli auspices and you know give all wonderful testimonies under Israel. Uh, it's 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 a kind of sellout and it and it's um, going against the grain of what Palestinians in Jerusalem themselves, who are the main players, uh, feel about this. Now, uh, Dr. Anwar, uh, if, if we look at, at, at what we've mentioned, and um, one thing that comes to mind is obviously, I think it was 2019 where the United States and Israel left uh, uh, you know, UNESCO. Um, we also know that uh, not too long ago, UNESCO admitted uh, Palestine and, and recognized the Palestinian site uh, in this, uh, of, 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 uh, um, of, of Masjid al-Aqsa. So when we, when we look at that and... Uh, would you say that 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 uh, the leaving of UNESCO, the fact that this idea around um, you know uh, them feeling a sense of offence that the Hebrew name of of of, of the compound of Masjid Al-Aqsa was was never included as part of the reference to the site, um, that these also in a sense paved the way for a a a direction uh, towards annexation. Look, I yeah. Look, I think. Th- that's one part of add, adding to the to the kind of legitimacy and the giving credence to the the right wing uh, forces inside of occupied Palestine. I mean, within within the the Israeli parliament. I mean, the contestations have been. They had three elections just to decide whether Gantt and Netanyahu can finally can finally come to an agreement. It's probably the most uh, contested uh, space. Um, in the entire region <clears throat> in terms of of what they would talk about a democracy which is it is a racist democracy there's no democracy there's there's a qualified vote and so on and so on but just in terms of your 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 question you know you can't you can't placate the debate um just uh, premised on um on on issues of of race or issues of occupation and issues on UNESCO. The issues of UNESCO just further exacerbated the issues. I mean, America has also removed themselves from the climate change conference. They've removed themselves out of um, their own statute. They removed themselves out of, in fact, kind of protecting um, wherever they are that you know the Rome statute that don't apply to them and issues on 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 human rights violations doesn't apply to them because they're kind of exonerated now the issues around giving credence to the narrative that a jewish state actually existed and that the temple mount is part of the um al-aqsa compound or the al-aqsa complex in fact was further in, they were further embarrassed by UNESCO not finding any traces. We know that that about 14 attempts by uh, Israeli archaeologists who were digging under the Al-Aqsa compound uh, couldn't find any trace of temple mounts or Jewish civilization to, to an extent. But this has been conducted by a Zionist, uh, informed by a Zionist position, not informed by a proper Jewish uh, commitment to peace and establishment in the area. Now what's happening presently is that the young millennials in 
Palestine, occupied Palestine, can't be sold this old narrative anymore. And they're not taking it. They're for the first time, you know, there was demonstrations day after day, night after night, against Netanyahu. There is obviously, in terms of the protection of Israel, a, a kind of threat that they sell to their populace, that, you know, Iran is going to bomb them, you know, Syria is going to bomb them, uh, Lebanon is going to bomb them, Hamas, and of course the, uh, <coughs> the, the organization which is now part of the uh, Lebanese government, um, I forget the Hezbollah. The Hezbollah, you know that that they are always in danger, and therefore these countries must be un- unsettled. Iraq must be unsettled, and so on and so on. So the issues around the removing of of any remnants of the uh, Jewish narrative there was just for the first time a truthful p- position by UNESCO, uh, a truthful position by the United Nations, although. About 124 resolutions have never ever been implemented, but yet they implement resolutions over no-fly zones in in Libya, um, issues of no-fly zones in Iraq at the time. They even removed a satellite navigation off Iraq uh, when they bombed Iraq at the time. So the inconsistencies by the United Nations, the inconsistencies on the Western media, um, that are only spinning a particular narrative. And it, it takes organizations like ourselves, like the people all on this platform, to give people a sense of the real and the true story. And that's coming out. Now, the last thing I want to say, there's many Christians that are being persecuted. It's not a contestation between Islam and Judaism. It's not. It's a political contestation of occupation. It's a political occupation of a violent occupation, of siege of land, identity, and of a people. And so too the Church of the Holy Sepulchre itself was under threat. And the, 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 the Christian priests then refused to open the church because they were taxed. In other words, they had to sell parts of the church over to Zionist occupiers, exactly as they forced a Palestinian to sell a small little coffee shop, a tea shop, right next to the boundaries of the east wall of uh, the um, Al-Aqsa compound, the Al-Aqsa mosque area. So this is all part of it. Then just lastly, the BDS movement, as you alluded to earlier, I was just listening to, to some of the replies. So the Israeli government spends about $3 billion, not a year, but... Three billion U.S. dollars have been set aside. In South African terms, that's 60 billion rand to counter, to counter the BDS movement. So they're punching hugely above their weight. And court after court, in a democratic process, have in fact uh, came up trumps for the BDS movement. And we have civil society behind us that are now not going to take the nonsense of the, the uh, biased media in vilifying the BDS movement in America, in Australia, in Germany, in Austria. Parliamentarians are in fact batting uh, for Israel against the uh, acceptance of the BDS movement. And we're not going to go away. The BDS movement and its alliance partners just won't go away. Um, So too is the new organization Africa for Palestine um, uh, making huge, huge strides like the BDS movement have done. And uh, 
the Al-Quds Foundation in South Africa, um, and many movements, the PSG, the PSA, you know, National Coalition for Palestine. Um, there is an assembly of movements that are mitigating against uh, the, the issues of, of the Zionist narrative and the Israeli project as it, as it, as it is today. Uh, just in wrapping up uh, the discussion this evening, uh, Ibrahim, uh, just from from your perspective, uh, we are we, we've seen a lot of activity uh, over the last couple of years. Um, uh, earlier on, we had a discussion where we spoke about the metal detectors and security measures that had, uh, was uh, that was attempted to be installed in the uh, on the compound of Alaksa, and this drew the the the, the you know the, the fury of people. Uh, we eventually decided to perform solar outside of the compound uh, of Al-Aqsa until these 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 security measures were removed. Um, if we look at if if we look at uh, from the the point of view of uh, you know the experience of ordinary Palestinians, um, not just in terms of being monitored and being watched by the state, but let's look for instance just at the. Um, the experiences of ordinary, uh, ordinary Palestinians, particularly, you know, when it comes to uh, the, the, the Zionist counterparts, when it comes to, you know, radical uh, uh, Zionists and uh, settlers and their attitudes towards Palestinians. Um, you know, how, how, how would, how would, how would you, you look at that sense of uh, hostility uh, as experienced by the Palestinians on a daily basis? I think if we center this question, Mohammed Fasih, on Wazir al-Aqsa itself as a battleground and as uh, Ismail Adam Patel had uh, mentioned earlier, this um, being a, the masjid being a metaphor as well for the wider, for the wider conflict. Um, or for for the wider Palestinian struggle, uh, you know, you you have, uh, for instance, uh, when Israel t- took over the Palestinian territories, uh, it it works uh, through. Um, you know, the, it's worked through the settler movement. Uh, so you'd have the, the Messianic settlers, uh, you know, starting off an outpost on um, on a mountain top. And the uh, Israeli army or the Israeli authorities to the world would say, you know, this is just a bunch of um, of of, of uh, fundamentalist settlers, and we don't have they don't have anything to do with our our, our, our official policy. That's how how they would um, you know uh, convey it to the world. And thereafter, uh, those settlers would you know be provided with armed Israeli um, protection. And that, you know, small shack that they had set up or container that they had set up uh, eventually becomes a house or two. And uh, with time, it's formalized. And, uh, you know, you have these mega settlements that have come up um, all across the Palestinian territories. Uh, so that's kind of the modus operandi that Israel has used to in- in- uh, increase settlements and apply sovereignty and thereafter, you know, come to the cusp of annexation of the West Bank. And uh, likewise, uh, this is the, the experience inside Masjid al-Aqsa. 
where uh, you know you you started off with uh, Masjid al Aqsa being uh, you know in 1967 uh, you know purely a Muslim site. Uh, thereafter, Israel took it over uh, and incremental steps. Uh, so it started straight after the occupation uh, by taking over the Barak Wall of Masjid al Aqsa and uh, des- destroying the Maghariba n- neighborhood um, next to it. So up. Uh, integral part of Masjid al-Aqsa was uh, thereby uh, appropriated Muslim access to Masjid al-Aqsa from the Maghariba gate was uh, strictly barred from that time until now. Uh, And uh, it started off again with, uh, if you have to take the burning incident, uh, you know, people, uh, Messianic, uh, Christian, Zionists, or Jewish Zionists, uh, you know, they, they were portrayed as being the uh, uh, you, you know zealots who, who wanted to take over the site, and this had nothing to do with Israeli policy. Uh, but since the 2000s, we've seen that these zealots, who uh, were supposedly on the fringes of Israeli society, um, are now in official uh, sites of power. Some of them have coming to the Knesset, some of them have come into the uh, legislature, have come into uh, you know the legal organs of, of the state. And uh, thereafter, you know, they've changed their, 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 their approach to work through these institutions, uh, and they've won over the Israeli security apparatus to their side, and they've started to, to, to increase in their visits to Masjid al-Aqsa, and they say once we reach a certain amount of visitors to Masjid al-Aqsa, ascending the Temple Mount, as they call it, we'd be able to reach a critical mass and change the sovereignty um, over Masjid al-Aqsa. So, and, and, and the Palestinians say that this is part of a plan to divide Masjid al-Aqsa in terms of time, so you know specific times for Muslims, specific times for uh, for Jewish worshippers, specific places as well. So division in terms of place, specific areas of Masjid al-Aqsa, the, the eastern area, uh, Bab al-Rahma convert that into a synagogue, and the rest of uh, areas for Muslims, all parts of incremental steps to take over Masjid al-Aqsa. So what was once a supposedly a fringe mo- movement in, in Israel after 1967 and those kind of attacks were carried out by, uh, by, by f- fundamentalists or zealots um, has become extremely mainstream and now there's official temple lobby and members of parliament and members of uh, ministers visit Masjid al-Aqsa and, and are part of this m- movement. And therefore, I, I think the, the, the wider point to be made um, towards the end of this, the, the, the discussion is that annexation and occupation beat of Masjid al-Aqsa, the wider area of Palestine, is uh, not an event. And therefore, you know, many fell into the trap to say that annexation didn't happen on the 1st of July, so it's not going to happen or it's, uh, uh, you know, it's been delayed. No. It's a process. And likewise, Masjid al-Aqsa, as we see how it has developed from 1967-69 until now, uh, you know, it's taking one small step at the time, keeping the bigger picture in mind. And what is that bigger picture? According to many Palestinians, um, and they've kind of attributed uh, a, a statement that uh, the late Moana Hassan Hendricks used to mention quite often in the Arabic language, la ma'ana. Uh, that there's no meaning to um, 
to, to Israel without Jerusalem, and there's no meaning to Jerusalem uh, without the uh, you know the establishment of the temple. So through these incremental steps, it's it's coming to that direction, and therefore it requires a vigilant eye on Masjid al-Aqsa and using such occasions such as the anniversary of the Asan attack on Masjid al-Aqsa to once again uh, refocus our attentions, our energies to the people of Jerusalem, to Masjid al-Aqsa, to the wider Palestinian struggle, um, and uh, also once again reaffirm and intensify our responsibilities and actions in this direction. Ibrahim Musa, Hafiz Ibrahim Musa, Shukran so much for joining us uh, from the Palestinian Information Network. We do appreciate your time uh, on the show, and of course, inshallah, uh, we uh, will uh, continue to cover this this uh, issue of the burning of 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 the member, but also I think uh, to continue the discussions around Palestine as a whole. It's we need to maintain and keep this on the agenda at all times because it's so easy in the malaise of of social media and all of the other issues that pop up on our feed all the time to to forget about uh, uh, the persecution of Palestinians and uh, the annexation the uh, of 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 uh, uh, of uh, uh, Jerusalem or Palestine, rather. Um, I want to say big shukran to you, all the best, sir, and chat soon, inshallah. Amen. And then also to uh, yourself, Mr. Nagia, shukran so much for joining us this shukran. evening uh, and, and being our guest for the entire two hours. Alhamdulillah. Yeah. Uh, all the best. Stay safe, inshallah. And we'll chat soon. Uh, shukran to you, From myself, Muhammad Fasif Peterson, it's been a pleasure being in your company. And once again, we want to say a big shukran to the listeners of CII Radio Islam and Salam Media for joining us uh, this evening. And I believe, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.